That's right, it is uh, the same reading as last week, and uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. This is actually part two of that first sermon, and if you were listening last week and you thought, I have no idea what's going on, I mean, I felt kind of like I was there with you. That was a really tough sermon last week, and I'm not sure I did as well as I would have liked to do. But this week, I think, I think as I've had some more time to look at it and think about it and pray over it. I think I've got something a little more for us here, by God's grace. Well, I remember when my kids were born. I have four kids, uh, so that means we had four different labor episodes, and you go to the hospital, and you go through all of that, and I found the whole process very unpleasant. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble this morning. I found the whole process very unpleasant. That's, as a matter of fact, one of my least favorite parts about being a parent was all of that. Now, you may rightly look at me and say, Pastor Ian, uh, I'm pretty sure your wife was having a much harder time than you were. Uh, granted, 110%. That's actually part of why it was so terrible. Because there was my wife suffering. There's nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do. Ladies, I'm not looking for sympathy this morning. I promise. But I just want to illustrate something here. You know what's hard? Like, having cancer is, is hard, right? Watching, it, it, going through labor is hard. You know, there are all of these different things in life that deeply hurt and are painful, and they're very difficult. And you know what often the worst part of them is? Is that there's nothing we can do. That's not always true, but sometimes it is. And that's what makes it really terrible. There is nothing I can do to make this better. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these seven churches of Asia Minor who received the book of Revelation. It was written as a letter to them. And they are suffering and they're being persecuted. And what Jesus tells them to do is just hold on. Just be faithful. Just be holy. And if you're keeping track at home, They've tried that in a lot of different ways, and yet they're still struggling, and they're still suffering, and evil is still doing its worst in the world, and it must feel like in the midst of all of these terrible things that are happening, there's nothing that we can do. And we feel like that sometimes, don't we? Not just in these, these incidents in the rest of our lives, which, by the way, we're just one person with one life, not you know, all of us are just one person, but each one of us. We are one whole person. We are the same person everywhere we go and everything we live. And all of our life is one life, part of the whole. But when we, when we think about how our faith interacts with the rest of the world, I think we often feel defeated and like there's nothing we can do. I think that's a lot of the time why people end up in street corners with signs that say things like, the end is near. Because there's nothing we can do except tell you all that you're going to hell and I'm done. I hope none of us are there, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like as we're trying to follow Jesus, there's nothing we can do. He told us to share the gospel and we've tried it and it seems like no one's listening. He told us to be holy people and we've tried it, but it seems like those same old sins keep cropping up and there's nothing that we can do. We've tried to be the people he's called us to be, and yet it feels like the most important things in our life sometimes haven't changed. That's not always the way we feel. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not always the way that we feel. We have moments of victory too, don't we? We have moments where we say, that sin is 
dead and I'm not going back. We have moments where we say, I have been serving this person and their life is changed. We have moments of great victory, but I think that often we can feel defined instead by our moments of great failure. I heard somebody say once that uh, if you, as a boss, I was a, a branch manager and I you know, took a class in management and, and someone had said, and I don't, I, I don't know if it's exactly true, but I think it's true in principle, you have to say 10 nice things to somebody for every negative thing that you say. For every piece of criticism you give, you need to give 10 pieces of encouragement. Because what do we do? What do we remember? We remember the criticism a lot more than we remember the encouragement. But something changes in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Remember, it starts off, Jesus writes the letters to the churches. He says, just keep on, keep on being faithful. That's what I need from you. And then it shows us heaven, and God's still ruling in heaven. And then there are the seal judgments where God starts to, to demonstrate this is why the world is the way that it is, and this is the judgment that I am bringing to the world for its wickedness. We get to the seven, trumpets, uh, seven trumpet judgments, and it's, in another way, more of the same thing. And in some ways, more of the same thing, where God is saying, okay, like we're, we're looking at it first. From, from this perspective. Now we're going to look at it from this other perspective. There's evil in the world. I'm going to judge it. And it's all about God's power, and it's all about what God will do. And yet, we might be sitting here reading and thinking, okay, but what am I supposed to do except just wait and hurt until God does all of this stuff? I feel still powerless in the midst of all of this. And in chapter 11, that all changes. Did you catch it? I mean, if you think about it, it's not that hard to see. So we mentioned last week that there are all of these symbols in Revelation chapter 11. Again, Revelation is a book full of symbols. This is a well-known genre of literature from this time period that's full of symbols. We looked at some of the specific symbols and demonstrated this is how we know they're symbols. Like, for example, the 42 months, the 1260 days, the three and a half days. They all correspond to the period of time that people understood Elijah to have been uh, ministering in Israel. It corresponds as well to the time, times, and half a time in the book of Daniel. So these are not necessarily literal days, like it's actually going to be 1260 days, but rather it's a time period that's meant to remind us of something else. And we see, first of all, that uh, John is told to go measure the temple. Now, John does this. I'm not sure we're actually about this. And he's doing it to act out God's prophecy over his people, which is like in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, where the same thing happens, that I will keep you protected and pure until the day I come back. Church, I have you in the palm of my hand, and you will land with me at the end. That's what the measuring of the temple represents for us. And then there are two witnesses who will prophesy for 1260 days, which is uh, 40 uh, months of 30 days, so three and a half years. Or excuse me, 42 <laughs> months of 30 days, which is three and a half years. Same number again. And this whole time, God has protected the church, these witnesses who we should understand as representing the church are prophesying. They're speaking out into the world who God is and what he's doing. 
See, the church participates. It's God's victory at the end of the day, right? Only God can bring history to its good conclusion, and we can't force it ahead of time. Sometimes we try, don't we? It's like, you know, by golly, you know, you people will be good no matter what I have to do. Like, we'll, we'll craft laws to make you good. We'll win elections to make you good. We'll do everything we can think of. We will force you to be good, and we find that never actually ends up having a lasting impact on anybody. Do you remember being a kid? Because we're all really basic basically still children. I don't know if that disappoints you or makes you excited this morning, but we're all basically still children. And you remember what happened when your parents said, don't do this? And you're like, oh, but why? Now that you've said don't, it sounds so wonderful. Like I, I have to test it. I have to find out why this is forbidden and go do it. Right? Laws, they don't change our hearts. As a matter of fact, what Paul says in the book of Romans is laws actually show how broken our hearts are. They bring sin to life in us. Now, laws are still good and helpful because they set good boundaries, but they don't cure our hearts. They may fence them in, but they can't cure our hearts. We want to force this, but our participation in God's victory is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. That's what God calls on us to do. And it's wonderful. Jesus showed us that there are at least two ways we can proclaim the gospel. We can proclaim it in the things that we say and in the things that we do. Do you know that every time Jesus healed somebody, he was actually proclaiming the gospel? He was saying, my kingdom is at hand. Let me show you what my kingdom looks like. There are no more sick people there. Let me give you a taste. Jesus says, my kingdom is about to come. Let me show you what my kingdom looks like. Tax collector, will you come to me? Will you come have dinner with me? Will you be received back into the fold of God's people? He says, say and do. And proclaim the gospel in both of those things. Now, there are two witnesses here because the Old Testament law says every matter shall be established on the basis of two or more witnesses. So the fact that the church is described here as two witnesses means that the testimony of the church is true. These two people uh, representing the church are called witnesses, which in Greek is martus, which is related to the Greek verb martureo, which does it sound like an English word that we know at all? Martyr. Martyr. At this point in the life of Christianity, the word martyr has not come to mean those who die for the faith. And yet certainly it includes those who die for the faith. These martyrs are witnesses. They are martyrs because their prophesying will be regarding Jesus Christ, of whom the church is the witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two witnesses because it will be like the ministry of Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go and delivered his people with great signs and plagues. And the church will do the same. Set these people free from the power of sin and condemnation. We are the people who set others free in power. Because we have been set free in power 
by the power of Jesus, death and resurrection, which we experience day to day in our life with God, sometimes in ways that we know and experience, obviously, and sometimes in ways that we don't fully appreciate. They wear sackcloth because of the terrible import of the message they bring. Jesus Christ, whom the world crucified, is returning as the rightful king and judge, and you must be ready. And when you put it like that, it sounds kind of like, it sounds kind of powerful, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like we might actually make a difference in this. It sounds like maybe we're not just the bystanders, the millicent bystanders, to quote one of our favorite movies. <laughs> Somebody says, I'm an innocent bystander. And someone says, your name is Millicent Bystander? No. Watch Flushed Away sometime. It's great. <laughs> we're not just innocent bystanders. But we are tasked with this great job of telling, people, telling the world who Jesus Christ is. And we have power and authority to do this. Our words themselves are like plagues, like burning fire to those who refuse to receive it. And this is primarily what the book of Revelation is focusing on because it's speaking to these persecuted Christians. It's speaking to these Christians who say we are sharing the truth and we're getting nothing but pain for it. And so God is at pains himself to show the people, I will make this right as well. But the New Testament doesn't only speak of, of our job as witnesses in terms of sackcloth and ashes, in terms of I will punish the evildoer, because the gospel will triumph over the enemies of Jesus in one of two ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says this. It says, thanks be to God, and we can't say that enough, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is a fascinating, I mean, it doesn't sound that interesting to our ears, but in the ancient world, a triumph, a triumphal procession was when the victorious general came back to Rome and they threw him a big parade and a big party and they had a big procession, which were the soldiers who were victorious with him, but more importantly, were the prisoners that they had taken. And in Corinthians, Paul is at pains to say, we are the prisoners. We were the enemies of Jesus Christ. We were fighting against him in every way you could possibly imagine. And then he defeated not just death, he defeated us in all of our rebellion. And now we are part of his triumphal parade. And we are so excited to be there. There's nowhere better we could be because his triumph over us was for the purpose of setting us free. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And as people see us and through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. People see us following Jesus Christ as those he has defeated and yet liberated at the same time. And they start to know something about Jesus because of it. We are the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are the aroma of Christ, Paul continues, to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. We have power as the witnesses of Jesus Christ. To be both and at the same time the fragrance of death to death for those who turn away. 
and the fragrance of death to life for those who will receive the testimony. And you notice God, he, he gives us a role. He gives us power. He calls us to do something. But what he doesn't call us to do is differentiate between the two. He doesn't say, hey, uh, would you please go and choose those whom you'd like to be the fragrance of death to death to or death to life for? He says, you will be witnesses to each and every person that you meet and the rest is up to me. And those who choose death, I'll take care of that. And those who choose life, I will take care of that. But you be witnesses. And through you, they will make their choice. The gospel will triumph through the witness of the church as if we were throwing about fire from our mouth, as if we were casting plagues left and right. And then one day that work will be done. In verse 7, it says, Now when they, when these two witnesses, when the church has finished its testimony, one day the work will be done. Isn't that good to know? It's like the shot, right? You go in and you're thinking, how long is this going to be? You know, how long will this hurt? Not long. You just get it in, they poke it, you know, it's pretty much done. There will be an end to our labors. But something surprising happens at the end. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And they'll gloat and will celebrate and will trade gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And it's not too hard to see what this might look like and how this works. You know, maybe there comes a day in the life of our country where the witness to Jesus Christ is finally and fully extinguished because, not because the world is one, but because the work of the church is done. And at that point, you know there are people, there'll be people who will celebrate. There's some people already celebrating the closure of each church the removal of Christianity from the public square as much as it can possibly happen. You know that this is happening. Dancing on our grave. I like how, uh, I think it was Michael Wilcock, I, I can't remember if that's his first name or not, but I like how he phrases this. He says, whenever we hear the gospel preached in the world, we know we are still living in the three and a half years. And wherever we may be when the church seems finally to perish. We shall know we have arrived at the Christ-killing Jerusalem, which is also Sodom at her most corrupt and Egypt at her most oppressive. God has said, this is what's happening in the world. This is what it's like. And who is it that ultimately seems to triumph over the church? Well, we read the beast, and we know that's an important thing in the book of Revelation. But we haven't talked about it at all up to chapter 11, and it's only here mentioned in passing. In a couple of chapters, we're going to pick up more with the beast. But for now, let me just say this. The beast is at the same time both the demonic power behind the pattern of brutal defeat in this world and also most likely a reference to a final conflict that will be the consummation of all that God has been doing and the end of the beginning of God's victory. Does that make sense? Because God's already victorious today. And it will appear that his victory will turn out to be false hope. It will be the end of his victory. But it's only the end of the beginning of his victory. 
And at that point, every knee shall bow. Why? Because the beast only triumphs for three and a half days. And yet the church prophesies in power for three and a half years. I was doing some math on this. I thought three and a half days is 1% of three and a half years. Then I realized, no, that was really bad math because there are actually 365 days in a year. So it's actually like a quarter of a percent of the time. Now, the important thing is not the ratio, but rather the vast distance between the two. The church ministers in power. Speaking of who Jesus is for three and a half years and the beast gets three and a half days. And I say, let him have his three and a half days when we get the three and a half years, when Jesus comes back after that and gives us eternity. The fact that he reigns for three and a half years is almost more insulting than not reigning at all at the end of the day. The reign of the enemies of Christ shall only be a pittance before all is made right. And when we fail today, when we witness and it feels like we've been defeated, we say to ourselves, we ought to say to ourselves, that the church has been given power to prophesy for years. The enemies of the cross shall rule only for a few days. When we fail, we should say, this will end. Our failure is the only thing that shall have an end in our lives. This is only a matter of days in God's long Long plan. Now, I am not telling you when that failure comes in whatever form it comes that it's not going to hurt. I'm not telling you that you should pretend like there's no pain in those moments. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We don't deny that suffering is a thing, we don't pretend that it doesn't hurt but we deny that suffering has the last word in our lives. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. After three and a half days, what will happen? After all the celebration, after the trading of gifts, after the dancing, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. And what happened to all the people who were dancing a moment ago? And terror struck them who saw And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This is a picture not of evacuation, but of triumph, right? Remember what happened to Jesus? He ascended into heaven just like this, didn't he? And it was because he was being exalted. And so shall God's people be. And the world shall give glory to God because of the church. This is an amazing thing. If you go back to the end of the seal judgments, you remember this, the the last seal, uh, and everything's, you know, the whole world is coming undone. Everything is terrible. And it says in chapter 6, verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? And yet, when the two witnesses rise and God acts to judge, at that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed 
and 7,000 people, which most take to be 10% of the population, were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified, and what did they do? And they gave glory to the God of heaven. See, all of the plagues that God unleashes that we think are really the answer and really the good thing, they are not good like the witness of God's people. The plagues cause people to say, hide us from the face of God. The faithfulness of the church causes people to say, let us give glory to God. Here's the hard thing. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has several encounters with the one true God. Uh, He sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking in the fiery furnace after they refuse to bow down to his idol. And Nebuchadnezzar says, their God is God. We should worship him. And he has a moment where his sanity is taken from him and he lives for years out in the wilderness because of his great pride. And when God restores his sanity to him, Nebuchadnezzar says, we should worship that God. And yet the book of Daniel leaves it ambiguous. Is Nebuchadnezzar saying, well, let's just add him to the pantheon because he's clearly powerful and we don't want to make him mad. Or is he saying, this is the only God who alone deserves my worship. And that's the difference. That's the difference between uh, an idolater and a true follower of the God of Israel, of Jesus Christ. And it's unclear which Nebuchadnezzar has done. And the same lack of clarity is here in this moment. Some commentators uh, say that at this point, those who are left turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Look at the power of the witness of the church. Some commentators say, here, they have some sort of acknowledgement that he is God, that they didn't get any other way, and yet there's no indication that they become his worshipers and that they actually follow him. There's something appropriate about that for the lives that we live, isn't there? The day is what makes it clear, that last day. There's nothing before it that gives us the the perfect answer. But I think here's what we ought to take out of this. We, even here in Lemon Cove, are the ones who are uniquely equipped to live in difficult days, to conquer through suffering, to proclaim the true king, to prophesy for three and a half years and be defeated for only three and a half before rising. Three and a half days before rising. We are Lemon Cove Community Church. This is not only the locality of our work, but this community is uniquely ours. We have the responsibility to prophesy of who Jesus Christ is and of what he has done. We have the responsibility to be to this community and beyond the aroma of life and death and trust God for the outcome. And I'm going to close with this. If you're wondering how to do that, how do I be the aroma of life and death? The very first thing you need to do is remember or maybe determine for the first time how Jesus is good news in your life. Because we are prophets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And gospel isn't a set of doctrines. It means good news. 
1 Corinthians 15 says the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, if you're thinking about that, you realize that's huge. Because why did Jesus die? And what did his death accomplish? And what does it mean that Jesus rose to life? What does that mean? Am I going to rise? There's all of this stuff contained in the idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But whatever it is, it's good news. So how, how is Jesus good news in your life? Pursue that. Don't make it something that you set up on a shelf to admire every once in a while. Take it down and hold it and touch it and marvel at it all over again. Tom Hanks, I just saw this article the other day. Uh, he's won a couple of Best Actor Oscars. And uh, he, you know, when you, when you get those Oscars, you, you hold them up on stage and you give your thank you speech and all this stuff. And, and there is oil and acid on your hands that starts to eat away at the gold plating on the Oscars. And so his Oscars have become, I don't know exactly what happens to gold, but they're all messed up. They don't look right anymore. And why is that? Well, I don't know if it's just because he held them in that moment, you know, up there on the stage. But I tend to think that probably more of what happened is he's, hold, he's held them a number of times in his life and remembered the great triumphs and victories in his life. And that can turn into a bad thing, you know, with an Oscar, but it can also be enormously wonderful. Wow, what an amazing life I've had. When you hold those in humility. And what if you did the same thing with the good news of Jesus Christ? What if you took it down off the shelf all the time and you got it dirty in the rest of your living? If you do that, you will be the very most effective evangelist you can be. Because telling people about Jesus Christ isn't about finding exactly the right words. It's not about finding exactly the right moments. It's about what God will do through you when you are honest about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. He has saved me from my guilt and my shame. He helped me when I was low. He reminds me that my triumphs are three and a half years and my failures are three and a half days. He gives me hope that my suffering is not the end and I've experienced it. Constantly pursue how Jesus is good news in your life. Hold those Oscars and then overflow. If you make Jesus first in your life, if you really worship him, the rest of it will follow and you will be a faithful witness. The aroma of death to life and the aroma of death to death.